Uh, We're in chapter 12. We're looking at verses 18 to 34 this morning. I'll read this for us. Uh, For those of you who may not be familiar with how we do things at Grace, you're going to want to have a Bible open uh, because we're just going to track through these verses together. So you're going to want to keep your Bible open throughout the entirety of the sermon. Starting in verse 18, Mark writes this. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor, one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Father, as we look at your word together this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand, that you would help us to obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a saying that we often say, I'm going to turn this monitor off because it's being a little wonky on us here. There is a saying that we often uh, use, what you don't know can't hurt you. What you don't know can't hurt you. We say that sometimes when we think that it would be better to not share information about a particular situation or circumstance with someone, lest they have to be accountable for knowing information that might do them harm. We all know there are things in life that it would just be better for us not to experience, not to be exposed to. Uh, For instance, last Wednesday, Ted Long, one of our elders, said at Bible study um, that it would probably just be best for us in life if we didn't know how hot dogs were made. Um, We have very wise elders here at Grace Church. 
What you don't know can't hurt you. But there is a sense in which that phrase is fundamentally wrong. Because there are things that we ought to know in life. Differences between good and bad, truth and falsehood, right and wrong, that God has revealed to us in his word that we ought to know. When it comes to the scripture, what you don't know can hurt you. And we see that played out in this text as we look at Jesus' interaction with two different groups of people. Remember last week we saw that Jesus is in a time of testing. He's in a time of evading all of the traps that are being set for him by all of the spiritual leaders who are seeking to, to trap him in something so that they could ruin his reputation, get him arrested, and ultimately get him killed. Last week we saw the trap that was laid out for him by the Pharisees and the Herodians in verses 13 through 17. This week we see two other groups that are going to set traps for him, the Sadducees and the scribes. And each one of these groups has in common a problem. Their common problem is that they are ignorant of God's word. They do not know God's word as they should. What we're going to learn this morning from Jesus' example is how to rightly handle the scripture, how important it is for us to walk in wisdom by holding tight to the authority of the Bible. We're going to see that Jesus shows that he knows God and he loves God by holding to God's word. This morning, there are two points that I want us, not nine, not nine points, those of you who were here last week know why that's funny. Um, not nine points, two points this morning that I want us to learn from Jesus' interaction, one for each one of his interactions, one from the Sadducees and one from the scribes. And point one is this, knowing God requires knowing God's word. Knowing God requires knowing God's word. Our text begins, if you take a look at verse 18, we're introduced to the first group in our text that's going to test him. It's the Sadducees. And Mark gives us a, uh, an important detail about who the Sadducees were in verse 18. He says, the Sadducees are those who say that there is no resurrection. Some of you may have grown up in children's uh, Sunday school singing the song, I don't want to be a Sadducee, no way. I don't want to be a Sadducee, no way. Because they're so sad, you see, I don't want to be a Sadducee. You see, we can remember who the Sadducees were because they should be sad, you see, because they don't have the hope of the resurrection. They didn't believe it. But that's not all they should be sad about because they also didn't believe some other very important truths of the Bible. In particular, they held to four things that they did not believe. First of all, the Sadducees did not believe in the full revelation of the Old Testament scriptures. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what the Jews called the Torah, what we call the law. All the rest of the Old Testament, they just threw aside and did not recognize it as authoritative. Secondly, they didn't believe in God's power. They thought that God had essentially set up creation and then just sort of sat back in heaven and let things unroll as they will without any involvement in them whatsoever. 
Thirdly, they didn't believe in the spiritual realm. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. And of course, fourthly, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Interestingly enough, we're going to see in Jesus' interaction, he nabs them on all four of those things. If you just take a cursory look, verse 24, Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures because you only believe in five books. You don't know the power of God because you've got a God that's just up in heaven twiddling his thumbs. He mentions angels, the spiritual realm, verse 25, and of course, he addresses them on the, the resurrection. He nabs them on all four. Four out of four, he corrects them on their error. So the Sadducees are coming to him, and they are going to try to prove to him that he is silly for believing in the resurrection, and they're going to do so by telling a really crazy, wild story. And they couch this story in a particular commandment that Moses gave. If you look at verse 19, 19, the Sadducees say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child... The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. What they're referring to there is in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. This was a commandment that God gave in order to protect the widows of Israel. Widows were naturally vulnerable, and God gave this command to ensure that a widow's family would care for her and not just let her on her own uh, to starve and uh, probably ultimately just to become homeless and destitute. It was also to protect her from becoming so desperate that she would be tempted to marry outside of the Israelite nation, which we know was uh, forbidden uh, by God for the Israelites. So they're going to use this command to try to disprove another truth in the Old Testament, the truth of the resurrection. So they tell this crazy story. Let's look at it. Verse 20 they tell the story to Jesus. They say there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. This poor woman, she's blowing her way through all these brothers. Can you imagine when she was married to the seventh one? She got frustrated. She probably said, you're acting just like your brother. And he would have said, which one? One, two, three, four, five, or six? And she would have said, I don't even remember anymore. Uh, and then, of course, she, she, they all die without giving her any children. And then it ends, verse 22, she dies. And they ask the question in verse 23 to try to make Jesus look silly. They say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For seven had her as wife. You can almost hear the tone. So see how silly the resurrection is, Jesus? Come on. What, are they going to fight for her in heaven when, when, they all, when she gets there? Are they going to fight to see who gets her as wife? Well, Jesus, how is he going to reply? He replies straightforwardly. He pulls no punches. He tells them straight up, you are wrong. Take a look at verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You're wrong and you're wrong for two reasons. You don't know your Bible and therefore you don't know the power of God, which is just another way of saying you don't know God. You see how Jesus is connecting the knowledge of God 
through the knowledge of Scripture, that the two cannot be divorced. We may think that we're very spiritual people. We may think that we are very uh, religiously devout. We're very interested in the things of God. But as disciples of Jesus, Jesus says, if you want to know God, you have to know the Scripture. And if you don't know Scripture, you don't know God. And he is also telling us in verse 24 that if, if we don't know the Scripture, we are bound to go wrong. He pulls no punches. He tells them straightforwardly because he loves the Sadducees. He loves them enough to say, guys, you're wrong. And you're wrong because you don't know your Bible. Even as he ends his conversation with them in verse 27, he reinforces the fact they're wrong even more strongly. He ends by saying, you are quite wrong. Do we have a heart to love people enough to tell them that they're wrong when we see them living and believing something that is outside of the scripture? Jesus loved people enough to be honest with them and tell them, you're wrong. Well, he tells them that they're wrong, but he goes on to show them how they are wrong. They're wrong on two fronts. They're wrong on the nature of marriage, and they're wrong on the nature of the resurrection. Take a look at verse 25. He says in verse 25, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He says the marriage covenant doesn't exist in heaven. The marriage covenant only lasts here on earth in this lifetime. And that's why when a bride and groom like Caleb and Beth are about to do, and when are you guys getting married anyway? Whenever you get married, uh, they're going to stand somewhere, maybe not up here, but somewhere, and they are going to pledge to be faithful to one another till death do us part. The marriage covenant only lasts in this life. In heaven, Jesus says, there is no marriage covenant. Some of us, that might be perplexing. You might think to yourself, how can heaven be paradise if I'm not married to my spouse? I love my spouse so much. I can't imagine not being married to them. Well, Jesus tells us about the nature of the resurrection in the end of verse 25. He says, what, what is our experience going to be like when we die in the Lord and we go to heaven? What's it going to be like? Verse 25, he says, we are like angels in heaven. Now, we have to be careful. Jesus does not say we become angels in heaven. We're not going to be like little precious moments babies. Uh, we're not going to be like those creepy medieval paintings where the chubby cherubim baby things with the harps, no clothes on with wings. That's not going to be us. We don't become angels. Rather, we are like angels in heaven. What does Jesus mean by that? Think about the experience that angels have in heaven from the minute that they were created. They enjoy the full presence of God. They are completely satisfied in him. They spend all their time enamored in him and, and fully worshiping him for all that he is. They have a perfect will to obey him in every single thing that he asks them to do. They're, they're spirits who, who minister for his sake. And that is what Jesus says our experience is going to be like. When we get to heaven, we'll be fully satisfied in God. We'll be in his presence. We will have a perfect will to worship him fully, to do everything that he desires. And we won't need things like marriage because we'll finally be with our bridegroom, Jesus. 
for all time. I love what J.C. Ryle says in his commentary on this verse. He said, death being no more, there shall be no more need of births to supply the place of those who are removed. Enjoying the full presence of God and his Christ, men and women shall no more need the marriage union in order to help one another. Able to serve God without weariness and attend on him without distraction, doing his will perfectly and seeing his face continually, they shall be like the angels. Now, he tells them that they're wrong. He tells them how they're wrong. And then he goes on to prove from the scripture where the resurrection is true, where we can see from the scripture that there is resurrection life after death. In verse 26, he actually uses a passage that was in the first five books of the Bible that they would have held to. And essentially, he's saying, guys, you claim that you believe in the first five books, but you don't even know them rightly. And so in verse 26, what, does, what text does he use to prove the resurrection? He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, the burning bush, how did God introduce himself to Moses at the burning bush? He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I, present tense, am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were dead at this point, but to God, they were still alive because through their faith in him and his promises, they had been raised to new life, resurrection life, eternal life with him in the heavens. So Jesus ends by saying in verse 27, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, this is not the only place that Jesus could have gone. I think a fun little um, study for you to do this week would be, uh, where in the first five books of the Bible can we see where resurrection life is popping through. Um, I, I did that. I was going to make it part of my sermon, and then Caleb told me that I would go too long, so I cut it out. So I give it to you uh, to, to, to study, and then you can send me emails. You can tell me about all that you found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy about where we can see resurrection. It would be a great study for you to do. But Jesus ends once again in verse 27 by saying, you are quite wrong. We take all this together, friends, in order to know God, we are required to know God's word. The Sadducees, they didn't read their Bibles like we should read our Bibles, like this, where the scripture is over us and we are under its authority and what it says we believe, what it says we practice and do. The Sadducees read their Bibles like this above them, above it, putting the scripture under their authority. We are going to choose what part of scripture is scripture and what part is not. We're going to choose what to believe and not believe. We're going to choose which commandments we want to obey and not obey. But friends, we are to read our Bibles like this, it over us. That's why we read Psalm 1 for our scripture reading this morning. The blessed man is he who delights in the word of God and meditates on it day and night. I think far too many Christians are steeped in the word, kind of like Pastor Caleb steeps his tea. Have any of you ever seen Caleb Russell make tea? It's an abomination. 
I remember the first time he asked me for a tea bag. I gave him one, and I watched him. He, he put the tea bag in the, in the mug. Like 10 seconds later, he pulled it out and he threw it away. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm making tea. I said, no, man, you just, you're drinking hot water is what you're doing. Um, he said, no, I steeped it. I said, no, you dipped it. It's not, I told him, you are no longer allowed to use my tea bags ever again. I warn all of you tea lovers out there, if Caleb's ever over, don't let him use your tea bags. But isn't that how sometimes we are interacting with the scripture? We merely just dip in, but we're not actually steeped. It's not actually brewing in all parts of who we are. God wants us to know him through a deep abiding knowledge, growing knowledge of his word. What are you doing to grow in your knowledge of God's word? What plan do you have in place for your own personal Bible reading? This year, I'm going through a plan that takes me all the way from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible in one year. It takes me only about 15, 20 minutes to finish the reading for every day. You can do it. You can make your way through the scripture every year. That's not the only way you can read the scripture. Uh, there are so many tools out there. If you would like help on putting together a plan, we would love to help you. There are opportunities here where, where we fellowship together so that we can get to know one another more as we get to know God more through his word. Are you involved in the adult Bible fellowship classes that we offer here on Sunday mornings that run at 945? Um, what about Wednesday nights at 6.30 where we gather together and fellowship with each other? This fall and winter, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a wonderful time of fellowship. The men here, there is a Bible study that happens at 6 a.m. on Friday mornings. Women, the women's Bible training is coming up. What can you get yourself involved in so that you might know God by knowing his word? Knowing God requires knowing God's word. And that takes us to the second interaction where point two, we see loving God requires obeying God's word. Loving God requires obeying God's word. If you take a look at verse 28, verse 28, this whole time that Jesus has been speaking to the Sadducees, it just so happens that a scribe saw them and came in to join in the conversation and to listen in at what Jesus had to say. He, he was probably just walking through Jerusalem and he saw Jesus and thought, whoa, that's Jesus of Nazareth. That's the guy that everyone's been talking about. I'm going to go finally see what he has to say. And as he listens, he's more and more impressed with what Jesus says. Now, Matthew's gospel helps us to understand a little more about who this man was. In Matthew 22, 34 through 35, it says, when the Pharisees, so he was a Pharisee, heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, so he was a lawyer as well, asked him a question. So this man was a man who was uh, serious about rule-keeping as a Pharisee, and he was also had a good grasp on the law of God as a lawyer, someone who would set, settle legal disputes with his brothers and sisters in the Jewish community. So he had a great grasp on the law. And we understand his motive for asking the question that he's about to ask Jesus. It's not a good motive. It says they asked a question to test him. He's essentially coming to Jesus very proud and thinking, well, I'm a lawyer. Let's see what this Jesus of Nazareth, this backwater prophet guy, has really, well, let's see what his grasp really is on the law of God. 
What's the question that he asks? He asks in verse 28, he asks Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, Jesus in his answer does something amazing. He does something that no rabbi or teacher had ever done before him. He takes two commandments and he blends them together into one, making up this great commandment. The first that he quotes, he takes first Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Jesus answers in verse 29, he says, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's not really surprising that this is the text that he chose. This was really the John 3.16 of the Jewish faith. It was really a core text for them. It was what they called the great Shema. Uh, Jews would have recited this multiple times every day. They literally would have had it engraved on their doorway to their house. Some of them would have worn the verse on jewelry on their body uh, because it was such an important and dear command to them. And the command, obviously, is that we are to love God with all of our being, every ounce of who we are, all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. God wants our great motive for all that we do, all of our obedience to him, being a great motive of love. Not that we just try to keep the rules, but that we honor him by keeping the rules out of a heart of love. The Christian life is a life that is lived from the inside out. It's not mechanical. We don't treat God like a vending machine. If I do this, then I'll get that. If I don't do this, then I'll get that. We live our lives because we love God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants him to be the treasure of our lives. And if he is indeed our greatest treasure, our heart will reside with him. But the second commandment that Jesus blends in this concoction is Leviticus 19, 18. In verse 31, he says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This commandment is a, a convicting commandment because God understands that we have a problem and our problem is that we love ourselves. We love ourselves too much. And God says, I want you to take that love that you have for yourself and I want you to direct it outward to other people. Love your neighbor just as you love yourself. If you love God, you will also love the image of God, people made in his image. How does this work out in our lives? Well, how you hope to be loved when life is going well is how you ought to love others. How you hope to be loved when life is going bad, when illness sets in, suffering, trials. We are to love others just as we hope to be loved in that season of life. What about when we find ourselves in sin? We've been walking in disobedience to the Lord and we know that we need to be corrected. How do we hope to be loved in times of correction? That is how we are to love others when we seek to help them and correct them in their walk with the Lord. I think the greatest way that we love our neighbor as ourselves, as Christians, the greatest way we love our neighbor as ourselves is by sharing the gospel with them, 
because the gospel is the greatest thing that has happened in our lives. This is the greatest way we've been loved. It's the greatest way we've found hope and joy and peace. And how could we not love others by also telling them the gospel, knowing, them, knowing that their eternal eternity hinges upon their faith in the gospel? So Jesus is doing something really masterful here in, in bringing these two commandments. When Matthew writes of this, Jesus ends his statement in Matthew twenty two forty, saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If it was a math equation, it would look something like this. Love for God and love for man equals a summary of all of God's commandments. Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus essentially takes all of the commandments, brings them together in love, and says, all of these commandments are important. Every single one of God's commands is important because if we love God with all our being, we will then seek to obey him as he has asked us to. If we love others as we should, we will love according to how God has commanded us. Loving God requires obeying God. Just as Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, the scribe is overwhelmingly pleased with Jesus' reply in verse 32 and 33, he says, he's answered well, he's gotten to the very heart of what God desires of us for all of his commands, and uh, much more than even all the sacrifices that we could ever offer to God. Uh, loving him and loving others is the key. But Jesus' reply to this man should sober us this morning. His reply is surprising. Take a look at verse 34. Verse 34, Jesus is pleased with this man's wisdom, but he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This man is wise, but as wise as he is, he's not in the kingdom, but he's not far. I think about it this way. If someone walked into our lobby this morning at Grace Church at Willow Valley, thinking to themselves that they were at Grace Community Church of Willow Street, which does happen, we would have to tell them, well, you're not in Grace Community, but you're not far. And no matter how they, they pleaded and, and were convinced, well, this looks like a church, it's worshiping like a church, it has a similar name to Grace Community Church, they would be wrong. They are not in Grace Community Church. For all this man knows, for all of his wisdom, He's not in the kingdom, but he's not far. What is the key that he is missing for him to get in to the kingdom? He is missing the key to entry, the only way that all of us must make our way into the kingdom. For all he knows, he lacks one important thing. He does not know God's son. He needs to submit and believe and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, the Savior, and the Lord of all. Uh, we can even see that this is what Mark has in mind when we look at next week's text. Jesus immediately starts getting at his own identity, trying to help him to see that he is the Christ. 
And this important truth, how can we know God? How can we love God? We cannot know God and we cannot love God apart from salvation through faith in Jesus. The Bible tells us that our natural mind in sin does not and will not know God according to how he has revealed himself in the word. We are hardened against the knowledge of God. And our love for God can never be because our hearts are hardened against loving him as he asks us to. What's the antidote to a hard heart, a hard heart and a hard mind? Only the gospel. That Jesus had come into the world to die for our sins, taking on the debt of your sin upon the cross so that through faith in him, you might be cleansed of all your sin. And by trusting in him, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within, giving you a whole new identity, a whole new walk of life, giving you a new mind to be able to know God according to how he reveals himself in his word, giving you a heart to be able to love God as he asks us to love. It is only in and through the gospel that we can ever seek to know God and love God. Friends, some of you may be here this morning and you find that you are not in the kingdom, but you're not far. You were raised in the church, you've got a lot of Bible knowledge, you, you're a very religious person, but maybe you've never actually trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. This morning, I hope you hear, I hope you hear the voice of Jesus telling you to come, to trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. What you can't, what you don't know can't hurt you. I think Jesus has shown us enough through his interaction with the Sadducees and the scribes to see that when it comes to the Bible, that simply is not true. That we need wisdom, we need him, that we might grow in our knowledge of him through his word, that we might grow in our love to him through our obedience to his word, and that we might grow in our trust in our Savior who alone can Usher us into the kingdom of God to belong to him. May God give us wisdom for each one of us, how we interact with his word, grow in it that we might love him more. Would you pray with me?